Bar served as both the 77th and the 85th US Attorney General in the administrations of both George H.W. Bush and Donald Trump. Working for the latter, he became one of the most famous and embattled attorneys general in American history. Bill, you attended Horace Mann School in the Bronx and Columbia University and George Washington University Law School. Where did you get your passion for history from? Well, it started off uh, very early in life. My parents were both educators and they started off reading to us and then encouraging us to read. Um, you know, my one of the books I used to spend a lot of time with as a little kid was uh, the Iliad, uh, a picture, ver- I mean, a, a child's version of the Iliad and getting into the Greeks and so forth. My father read Kidnap to us and I became very interested in Scottish history. And then uh, he started reading and then I started picking up reading Tales of a Grandfather by uh, Sir Walter Scott, which, as you know, was written. He, he writes it to start off, and so young kids can read it really, and and then it gets more and more complicated as you go along. But I was always steeped in history. They always bought, bought uh, books for us. There was a series of children's book called the Golden Books, and they bought a lot of books about the American founders, about great events in American history, about American inventors, and so forth. So. History and biography were really, uh, you know, I got reading from the very beginning and loved it. And I tend to read that uh, that genre, uh, uh, you know, primarily. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned the founders because, of course, um, their genius is essential to understanding the U.S. Constitution. They're coming under a lot of fire now, um, uh, politically, largely from the from the left and the woke, because of uh, the fact that some of them were slave owners and so on. What's your sense of this? Do, does it in any way detract from the level of that um, genius that they that they did have in creating this extraordinary document? Not at all. Um, you know, one of the things about the left is they're very. You know, they, they, they say that uh, you have to judge people by the time and circumstance and the culture in which they lived, and there's no end of their uh, justifying other cultures in the world today and some of their practices because, oh, just, that's the way it is. You have to understand that, uh, you know, cannibalism in New Guinea, you know, up until recently, <laughs> you know, you have to understand <laughs> it in perspective. And, uh, but but when it comes to history, uh, they seem to forget that, and they seem to try to judge people who've lived in other ages uh, by what they consider the standards of today. Uh, and you know, all of us, when we look back, I mean, uh, human beings uh, over the past fifty thousand years of our evolution and and uh, our social. Uh, progress and so forth. We've done things in the past that, uh, you know, we wouldn't do today, but that doesn't uh, erase the principles, the great ideas, the great thoughts uh, of past generations. And and we also, don't we, in our law, um, use that um, genius of past generations in that, um, of course, history, which provides precedent, is essential to our joint common law tradition. Right. Do you think that because of this use of history, this ability to sort of muster the past, as it were, um, for the uh, for what's happening in the present, do you think that gives the common law an advantage over the other, uh, the civil code, the European law, the Roman law, the other traditions that uh, that one sees um, elsewhere outside the English speaking world? 
You know, absolutely. You know, I think the great achievement of Western civilization as far as uh, political ideas and, and structures, in my mind, is the Anglo-American system that evolved gradually and over a lot of different influences, uh, uh, the genius of a lot of people over time uh, was responsible for this structure that we have. And generally speaking, conservatives like me believe that uh, many heads over a long time and many ideas and, and experience, lived experience, as they would say, over a long time will generally lead to better ideas uh, than uh, the the sort of rationations of an individual at any given time. And so, you know, the, the great genius of our, I, I ended up or not, I, I really began learning both British history and American history hand in hand. And I don't think you can understand Americans in my mind cannot understand uh, our system without first understanding the British, the evolution of the British system. And you're a supporter, aren't you, of the um, unitary executive theory, which seems to me completely based on Article 2 of the US Constitution. It says the executive power shall be um, vested in a president of the United States of America. It seems pretty um, straightforward to me, but right. this has come also come under um, assault over the years. And you, you, it strike me a stalwart defender of the original concept. Is that true? Right. Is that fair? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. It's it's a very simple concept, and the and the critics of it don't either understand the history or they're and they're and seem to be incapable of actually reading and understanding uh, what documents say. But the basic debate in the United States was uh, what kind of executive branch do you have? And there were people who wanted to have multiple executives, councils and, and, and so forth in order to temper that power. And the framers believed that, uh, no, that the energy uh, that they wanted to have uh, in the executive could only come from one person. And so they made it clear that the executive power is vested in one person, and that's the unitary executive. And then efforts over the time by Congress to weaken the presidency by trying to have executive power exercised by collectives uh, have been struck down because they have to be under the supervision of the single executive power. So it's a very simple concept. Uh, and to me, it's part of the genius of the American system is the capacity of the chief executive officer in, in every critical juncture of American history where our, our republic uh, was at issue. It's been the, the executive that has come forward, really, and uh, by exercising vigorously the executive power has really saved the nation. And do you think that... Um... The critics of the of the theory have been able over the years, over the centuries, I suppose, been able to undermine the um, that uh, Article Two. Or do you think it's it's just as strong today as as it ever was when they uh, agreed it? No, I think it's been very much undermined uh, by the civil service laws and the bureaucracies and the protections that Congress has enacted it has made it very hard for the executive to function with the, as they say, energy dispatch and secrecy, I think, in the Federalist Papers. <laughs> and uh... <laughs> what, can be, what, can, what can be done about that in your, uh, in your view? Well, there are a lot of problems with the, as, as things have evolved in our system. And uh, there are two, the two big ones are um, 
the loss of the federalism principle, uh, that is narrowing the, uh, having the federal government do what only the federal government can do and do well, and that is national defense, foreign policy, and, and a few areas of domestic policy, which involves a common market in the United States. But other than that, don't overload the federal government with all these other responsibilities. And the second one is in the federal government, recognize that uh, the, the president uh, is, the idea of the president is an errand boy for Congress really is, came comes out of Whiggish thought in, in British history, where the whole game was limiting the power of the king in favor of the power of parliament. But when, when the Americans established the presidency, it was already almost the perfect Whiggish executive, mm. uh, you know, limited term and so forth. But and and so we and 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 so all this effort to water down the powers of the executive, I think, have been you know, have have detracted from the ability of the United State, States to act with dispatch and energy and for the executive to play this proper role. One place where it did and where you were closely involved was back in 1989 as head of the Office of Legal Counsel when you were involved in the legal aspects of the capture of General Noriega in, uh, in Panama, right. um, which was um, a, a superbly successful military operation. Um, it learned from the Grenada invasion three years earlier. Did it have lots of legal implications? Were you uh, were you very busy at that stage, having uh, to to work on that? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I was very busy. I went down that night to the Situation Room. Uh, I had been playing my bagpipes over at the Justice Department for. Oh uh, no, you yes. hadn't. Have you seriously? You're a bagpipe player. Oh, my son's a bagpipe player. This since is, I was eight this years. Is the this is the worst thing I've heard about you, Bill. I'm sorry about that. Since I was eight, what years a tragedy years. that is. Anyway, carry on. And and I was <laughs> playing, and I was in full regalia because I was playing for <laughs> the Attorney General. Asked me to play. I, I was I was the Assistant Attorney General. What a and, sight! Uh, and I went home to change. Fortunately, I didn't walk around the Situation Room and. <laughs> but uh, I, I had just come from that, and I was therefore feeling particularly martial. And, uh, you know, the legal issues were were primarily international law justifying our action under the UN Charter, under the, the uh, Organization of American States and other agreements, and the Panama Canal Treaty. So we were doing work on explaining and justifying under those uh, uh, treaties, you know, why we were doing what we were doing. And then because it was a law enforcement operation in part uh, that is arresting Noriega, uh, we had a lot of uh, things to do in terms of providing law enforcement authority to some of the troops and, and so forth, embedding marshals and DEA agents and things like that. So there was, there was a lot of that kind of work. And uh, you were also um, involved in H.W. Bush's, President H.W. Bush's, pardoning of the six officials who were involved in Iran-Contra um, back in 1982. How do you think uh, history will will see that initiative? I mean, um, in a sense, uh, America was doing doing well on both levels. It was getting its, uh, its people, uh, it was getting hostages out of Iran, and it was strengthening the, uh, uh, sand, uh, the um, opposition to the Sandinistas. Uh, do you think that in years to come, history might be a bit kinder about that uh, whole operation, or do you think it was a, uh, a disaster from the start? It goes 
to what I've always said, which is, you know, history is written by the winners and it depends who wins. I think a just history would would uh, be far more sympathetic to that episode. Uh, and But the whole episode, the whole investigation and prosecution was an example of dividing the unitary executive. They created this independent council who had separate power and therefore could go on this quest for scalps. And uh, I think the Justice Department as an institution uh, questioned whether in fact any laws were, except for obstruction issues, whether there was any real prohibition on, on what they were doing uh, that, that could result in criminal liability. But, uh, you know, the, the Democrats at that point were uh, did not want to interfere with communist takeover of Central America which is what their the motivations of the people involved was not to leave in the lurch these groups that had been fighting the communists. And uh, so I think they had, at, at, at the end of the day, one of the things cited by the president when he pardoned them was that they didn't do this for mercenary reasons. They did this uh, for noble reasons and uh, not self-serving reasons. I supported the pardons, obviously. You're, uh, you were only the second person ever. I think this is extraordinary, really, considering the 200 plus years of uh, the American constitution, but only the second person to have served two non-consecutive terms as attorney general. And there, there's a huge gap between them, 28 right. uh, years between them. Right. Uh, what, what, was it, what was it like? Uh, tell us about the deja vu that you must have uh, felt about going back into the same job 28 years later and the and the sort of difference between the two well it, there was some deja vu but it was also a very different job for one thing on the outside people said what's different and i said things on the outside move faster things on the inside move slower how do you mean that means you know before the first time i did it there was no internet really to speak of there was no cable news there were no cell phones my my security detail had one of these big uh, uh, so-called cell phones that was like a world war 2 walkie talkie yeah <laughs> and uh so newspaper and the, the news took like about a week to get an article out you know always have plenty of lead time uh whereas the second time i came in my my aides were constantly their heads were buried in their cell phones. Things were happening in real time. Statements that I had to react to were coming up, you know, instantaneously. The news cycle was just hours. You know, you'd hear about a story and it would be on the on the internet in a few, uh, you know, in a few uh, hours. And uh, so things moved very quickly on the outside, and you could get over uh, overflow of information that internally had become a lot more bureaucratic, largely because people are risk averse, largely because of the media's you know, savagery, uh, especially in Republican administrations, but generally of attacking uh, individuals involved in decisions. And, and so no one wants to stick their head up and make difficult decisions. And that leads to a lot of what we call, you know, cover your ass mentality and people trying to finesse problems and moving them around the bureaucracy instead of resolving them. And so things move slowly in, internally. And the other thing was the first time I took it, it was after eight years of Ronald Reagan. And I, the institution I think was, was more centrist and maybe a little right of center as a whole. And uh, the second time was after eight years of Obama. And I think the department had moved more to the left, which, which if, 
you know, real professionals, as in your system in the UK, should be able to check their politics at the door and act in the public interest. And most, I think, still do, but there's an increasing number of people who can't do that, and they think that they should be pursuing some higher political purpose in office, and they corrupt the the values of the institution. Were you conscious of history, you know, being at your shoulder in either or both of those um, those roles? I mean, did you did you have a sense of of thinking about what the future would be thinking of your actions during your attorney generalships? Yeah, even when I was assistant attorney general, my first job was sort of as the lawyer's lawyer for the administration, the constitutional lawyer for the executive branch. And when I, the very first time I sat at my desk and signed my name to a legal opinion, and as you know, uh, assistant attorney general of the United States, uh, it, it uh, you know, I felt uh, I felt the the weight of responsibility and the and the fact that uh, over time people would be looking at what I did, and so yeah, it was very sobering, uh, and um, it was a terrific experience to act for on behalf of the country. And the second of your attorney generalships, it was as you say, um, extraordinarily fast moving. There, it seems to have been. Um, a, a time of sort of crisis after crisis that you had to uh, to take one after the other. Um, the Mueller report, uh, Roger Stone and and General Flynn, the death penalty, the Affordable Care Act, uh, just nonstop. Um, the impeachment, Ukraine um, connections, and things like that. I mean, do you think that's unprecedented, or do you think that um, that i.e. what was that um, presidency? Unprecedented in the sense of the number of uh, crises that were thrown up con- consciously and constantly, or do you think that actually politics has been pretty much the same? That um, that there are always crises uh, bubbling under or, or or being thrown up, and that uh, it's just that we need a better historical sense of um, of uh, perspective. Well, it's both. It's both, actually. Uh, on the one hand, there there were things, you know, the pattern of history persisted through the, uh, the, the first time around. I thought I had all the crises I could deal with. I had the L.A. riots, <laughs> the Gulf War, uh, things like that, uh, the invasion of Panama uh, and, and a, a number of different things. There also was this savage attack on H.W. Bush, the elder Bush, in an effort to to essentially, you know, to destroy his presidency after the Gulf War, after he was at 89 percent popularity. The media went on a jihad against him and brought him down and he ultimately lost the election. And I reminded Trump about that. I said, you know, you're not the first Republican president to face this kind of dirty tricks and and uh, uh, unrelenting hostility. But that said, uh, and of course, when you think back on Lincoln, Lincoln's days and the savagery he faced uh, when he was trying to hold the Union together and then ultimately uh, wage war. Uh, So it's good to go back in history and see how bad things were in the past and how, (laughs) how we somehow muddled through. But I would say that uh, it was unprecedented under under Trump in, in the sense that this was uh, not the loyal opposition. This was the quote resistance. They were doing everything they could and they were breaking the norms. I think the left was breaking the norm. I mean, he was certainly breaking stylistic norms and other things, but 
They would not confirm appointees, uh, make it very hard to run the executive branch with so many vacant positions. Uh, and they, you know, took the position that he was not a legitimate president and anything uh, was justified in trying to hurt Trump. So it was a very hostile environment to, to operate in. And certainly when I came in halfway through, I was viewed as sort of st helping to stabilize things and uh, steady, steady, steady the ship. And the media was just, you know, apoplectic that I would come in and do that. And so they've they've been very negative on me because of that. But um, so I would say the the number of of crises isn't isn't the difference. It was, it was just the the. Uh, degree of opposition and uh, uh, savagery of the opposition and the uh, sort of burn it all down if necessary. Having worked in Washington 30 years apart, you know, the, th the complexion of things had changed very significantly. You know, the, the first time I would just, even the, the first time I, I would three, I went through the Senate three times unanimously. And then, you know, 28 years later, I won by, uh, uh, four votes, three Democrats voted for me. So, How do you think history will view the Trump presidency? Uh, I, you know, I, I, I tried to be balanced in my book. Uh, you know, I think, I think that he should get credit for a number of things he's accomplished. He accomplished. Uh, and uh, I think waking up to the threat of China, rebuilding our military at that point, I hope we continue to do that uh and uh deregulation and, and being letting this giant economy we have uh, perform as it can but uh you know i think he had a number of personal flaws that detracted a lot from that and i think he could have won re-election and uh to some extent uh he had bad luck with covid and other things but i think his lack of self-discipline um uh, and self-control uh, was really ultimately responsible for his defeat. And it was you who who actually uh, um, made it clear legally that he had not won re-election, even though he claimed that he had. And also, obviously, after the um, outrages of the 6th of January, you said that he committed a betrayal of his office. Was there a particular moment that future historians will be able to look to that decided you that President uh, Trump was essentially unfit for office right at the end then? Well, I'm not going to use the word unfit for office, but <laughs> I will well, say... you say a betrayal of his office, it doesn't sound as though you think that he was particularly fit for it. Under people, those can, people can do things that are shameful <laughs> and, and a betrayal of their office uh, without necessarily be unqualified or unfit for it. I'm just not going to get into those semantics because... Got it. No, 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 I understand. But was there a moment that, that you just thought enough is enough? Well, I thought right after first, I, I supported him and his policies up to the election. And I thought internally it was sometimes difficult to keep him on track, but it was a very it was within the law. It was in the the guardrails. We defended everything in court and won pretty much the uh, what he did. So his policies up to the election, I think, were fine. I think uh, on election night, when he came right out of the box before there was any evidence and started declaring that there was major fraud underway and that the election was being stolen, that was grossly irresponsible. And his behavior after that, continuing to peddle uh, uh, these uh, these uh, stories about the machines and other things, uh, really was detrimental to the country and had no basis. So that was number one. And number two, 
you know, that, what, what he did on January 6th. I, I don't know if he was legally responsible or incited the rioting, but he certainly uh, precipitated it. He led people to believe that if they went up to the hill and did something on the hill, that they could somehow influence events and influence what the vice president was going to do. And so uh, I said at the time, and I still believe that was, you know, shameful conduct. He had no business interfering in, in that process. And and since, what what's your view on documents, Gate, um, the Mar-a-Lago, the Biden's garage and, and so on. Is there is there any sort of further feelings that you have on this on these issues? Well, I, you know, I, I think people I think would be willing to uh, understand a president, any president, ending up with some documents that they took out. When you move out of the White House, things might be chaotic and so forth. There are things in boxes that you don't know were there, and and people I think would have cut him slack on that. Uh, the real question is what happened after he was told about it and asked for the documents back. There's simply no argument that the documents belong to him. They did not belong to him. They belong to the government, whether they're classified or not. So it doesn't. And and so playing games, I think if he gets into trouble there, it will be playing games with the documents and playing games with the government and, you know, maybe sh playing a shell game or something. Perhaps that's what he'll be accused of. But that is where the problem is. And I think it's an example of him uh, sometimes being his own worst enemy and doing stupid things that are needless that needlessly get him in trouble. However, he that said, he's also the lucky one of the luckiest people in the world because but you know, I think had not Biden, I, I, I said before Biden's problem arose, I said, you know, I, the, the department has him dead to rights. I mean, and I thought they were going to go after him on it. I don't know what they'll do now that it appears to the problem appears to be more widespread. Churchill used to take uh, documents home. There are piles and piles and boxes and endless boxes of them um, as well. It's yeah. uh, it's obviously not something that was ever invented by um, by either Mr. Biden or, or Mr. Trump. <laughs> That's right. Um, the um, uh, Let's look again at, uh, at how history has helped you in, in your job. Um, the um, the 103, for example, with Al Qaeda, you looked back to the precedence of Nazis um, infiltrating America. Tell us that story from the beginning. It's a it's a fascinating one, and I and I think it's uh, interesting that uh, that history has been useful to you. Explain explain how. Well, one of the main dichotomies that the West has not completely figured out yet. I think they've gone the wrong direction in the UK. In the United States, there's still hope of, of clarifying people's thinking. And that is, our, our organized foreign terror groups or, 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 or large uh, criminal operations engaged in deadly activity that are in safe havens overseas, that is, threats that are external to our country, are those law enforcement matters or those national security matters? In my view, they're national security matters. The Constitution grants two powers. One power is law enforcement, which is correcting errant members of the body politic. And we limit the power of the government. We have all this process that came out of the British system to make sure that the law enforcement process was not oppressive to the people, the subjects of the king or the people in the United States. And uh, the other power is our defense power to defend our country from external threats. 
And there, we don't dilute that power. We don't weaken it. We don't take the person we're operating against and raise them to the same level as the government itself and have an even playing field. No, the purpose of the Constitution is to crush the external threat as quickly as possible. And so uh, after uh, the bombing of Pan Am 103, I started thinking, you know, why are we pursuing this purely as a criminal matter? Uh, well, we need to figure out who bombed the plane. Uh, but after that, what are we going to do with them? Are we going to bring them back for trial? Is that really the end game here? Uh, and uh, what kind of trial would it be? Would it be our civilian courts? And I started thinking about the fact that that Nazis had come into the United States. Nazi military had been landed by some Marines in the United States. They had been rolled up very quickly. They were court-martialed, uh, and all but uh, two of them were, were executed within, I think, 30 days. I mean, it was boom. And it was a secret military tribunal. And so I went back, and, and I knew about this, and I started going back and looked at how we handle those tribunals. And then I looked at the fact that the United States and the United Kingdom during World War II had had some joint tribunals. So I started thinking maybe the way to do this is to have a joint uh, UK or, or Scottish uh, American uh, tribunal and try these people under as, as people who have committed violations of the laws of war, attacking civilian targets like this. And they were members of the Libyan intelligence service. So that was my thinking there. And I still think these same issues lurk there in terms of dealing with terrorist groups and dealing with uh, narco-terrorist groups like what we have right across the border in Mexico. Well, that was going to be my next question. Uh, tell me what you think, um, how history can help us in this, in this you know, almost existential struggle that's going on uh, in, uh, in Mexico at the moment. Yeah. Well, you know, I was very familiar with this letter written by Abraham Lincoln's attorney general, a guy named James Speed at the time, who was talking about this very issue and about how lawless brigands uh, operating outside uh, were, were sort of enemies of all humanity and could be hunted down and tracked down uh, and uh, dealt with as national security threats. It wasn't a question of bringing them back into the United States and trying them and so forth. So I, in Mexico, I think the problem we have is, is uh, that we have these narco-terrorist groups, they're paramilitary, they control a great portion of Mexico. The Mexican government has neither the will nor the means to deal with them. They've essentially, they're content to coexist with them, and they operate from these safe havens. And the, the, the uh, cost to the United States is immense. We're now having just direct overdoses is hundred over 100,000. It's higher than our highest killed in action rate during World War II in any, in any one year. 1944. Wow. Wow. 1944, really? 1944 we, and this is killed in action, not total casualties, but killed in action yeah. at 106,000 in 1944. We're losing that in overdoses. So just put that in perspective. Uh, and so they're wreaking this havoc on the United States and uh, from safe havens. And the Mexicans, if they want to claim sovereignty, they have to deal with that. And they're not dealing with it. So my view is it's a national security issue. We cannot prosecute our way out of this case by case, especially if we have to rely on the Mexicans. In Mexico, only 95% of violent crimes are ever punished. It's, their system is not- Sorry, 95%. That seems quite high. They can't- 
Oh, not punished. Oh, apologies. So 5% are. Yeah, they're, they're a totally dysfunctional system. So uh, my view is we have to treat this as a national security matter and, and go right after the, the head of the snake. It's not the only solution to the drug problem. We have to worry about de reducing demand. But in terms of attacking supply, which is also necessary, the place to attack supply is at its source, not to try to chase it around the streets of our cities and lock up street dealers. We should, you know, I'm not saying we shouldn't, but we can crush these cartels. And we did in Colombia in 1990 to 1995. But, yes, but you had um, the Colombian government on your side. Right, um, that's the stage. Yeah, but but if you don't have the Mexican government on your side, how on earth do you do something across the border in a sovereign country? So, so my, I mean, what's your what's your historical pre precedent here? I'm, I'm, I'm hoping well, okay. You're... So, well, first, number one, my view is it, that that once the Mexicans understand we are we are going to fix this one way or the, with or without you, they will join us. Up until that point, they will do nothing. So first, we have to be ready to do it ourselves, and then I think the Mexicans will will support the action, because uh, they need to be liberated from the clutch of these cartels, and they can't do it themselves. Second, you know, under international law, it's a well-established principle that if uh, that sovereignty, the the right of sovereignty, has the duty to ensure that your territory is not used as a launching pad for injury against another country, and if you are unwilling or unable to take care of that. You cannot invoke your sovereignty to block the other country from exercising the right of self-defense. We use the, the United States and the UK recognizes and have used it, the, the US most recently in, in Syria. And so are you envisaging, um, when you say go to the to the head of the problem, do you mean the growing of the of the opioids or do you mean the um, individuals, uh, the, the cartel bosses? Both. I, I've said that I think that this group is much more like ISIS than the American mafia in operating in, you know, Philadelphia or Providence, Rhode Island in the United States. And th those things you can deal with law enforcement case by case. You're dealing with tens of thousands of paramilitary folks down here. And uh, I don't think uh, in Mexico, and I don't think the law enforcement process is going to be sufficient to deal with it. I think they're much more like ISIS. I don't think this is a question of rolling armored divisions down and invading Mexico. Clearly not, no. But what what do you think militarily might be the way of going about this? I mean, this isn't Pershing's punitive expedition, is it? Or is it? Well, it, I think what Syria showed is if we get the intelligence, which we can collect, we first you know collect find out who, who's doing what, where they are, what their communication systems and so forth. I think we have the ability using intelligence tools, special operations uh, operators, uh, and uh, economic uh, tools, uh, sanctions and other things, uh, and uh, dealing with financial institutions and potentially going after financial institutions through a whole series of things uh, we we could destroy these cartels. I mean, we did extirpate the Cali cartel and the Medellin cartel completely. Uh, do you see any um, candidates at the next election who might uh, might run with this idea? Uh, I think I think uh, a number of the Republican candidates would be open to doing this. I think it's just an intolerable situation. I don't understand why. You know, what's the alternative? 
That's that's what I'm trying to say. What's the alternative? If the if the Mexicans seem to be content and they are content with the status quo, sharing their sovereignty with these large organi uh, criminal organizations, what's the alternative? We can't keep on to keep on sustaining this kind of damage. Um, I ask two of my I, two questions of each of my guests, and um, the first is what history book or biography are you reading at the moment? By the way, uh, let me just say. This should this is not this shouldn't be strange to either the United States or the UK. I mean, the Barbary pirates were sort of a similar type of operation, right? But, uh, Absolutely, no, no, no. We um, we uh, did that also, of course. The slave traders who we at the yes. Royal Navy fought or, uh, against for um, for thirty years at the cost of thousands of British sailors' lives. You know, no, no, no. Um, I mean, you um, uh, the, the British Empire, needless to say, um, uh, took very little notice of the sovereignty of any other country for a very long, for a very long time. Uh, so I'm not in any way. Uh, uh, saying that there isn't historical precedent, there's 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 plenty of it, and it seems to me that you've thought through the legal precedent as well, which is the which is the other important thing. You know, if right. and if you're able, if you're able as you were to capture General Noriega, bring him back to America, imprison him uh, essentially for the rest of his life in in America, then um, then taking the war to the um, Mexican drug cartels is not a million miles. From that, either obviously geographically or uh, right. or in terms of the law, so um, yeah. it's uh, it's, 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 it's it's understandable the way you the the way I mean, where I in America, I feel exactly the same way. I think there's also another point, which is the extre uh, the the extreme nature of the narcotics here. You know, this isn't just addictive stuff. Okay, this is poison. And it, it's distributed in, in in pills and stuff in a way that no one really knows what they're taking. It's murder. It's really like shooting into a crowd. It's murder. They know people are going to die. And and could uh, is there any way? I don't know enough about the actual um, growing of this um, uh, of the um, drugs. But is there any way that you could defoliate the places that they're that it's grown? Uh, or is this all done inside in an impossible way for you to um, be able to interdict? Well, the organic stuff, such as cocaine and heroin, yes, it's, we know exactly where the heroin fields are, and we can deal with that. And the same with what's left, I mean, the cocaine that is still in parts of Colombia, protected by FARC on the border of Venezuela and in Peru and so forth. But the real prop, the thing that's killing everybody right now are the synthetics made with chemicals. And those chemicals come out of primarily uh, China. And they're bought in bulk as the precursors, and then they're they're manufactured in Mexico into these pills, and uh, that's the fentanyl. And uh, there's also India potentially could supply these precursors. Could you stop? Could you stop the uh, the transport of the precursors from India and China into Mexico somehow or another? Yeah, and th and that's one of the critical things. And they come in these big container ships and containers and they're huge and they come in and you know if this was happening from canada and we had all this fentanyl being fabricated and brought down from canada the canadians and the united states would be able to do something about it and interdict the these uh, these uh, shipments the mexicans have been working on this for quite a while and we see no progress in it so that but interdicting those precursors is going to be an important part of it the other thing is that the Mexicans are trying to domesticate all the drugs. They're trying to get 
uh, all their supply chain essentially into Mexico, so they're not as dependent on other countries. I'm going to. I am going to uh, um, go back to the question now. You've you've uh, you've you've really set a hair running um, uh, in my mind about uh, about this. Uh, tell me what book you're you're reading, what history book or biography you're reading at the moment. Well, the bi- the biography I'm reading right now is um, American Ulysses by Ronald White. It's a one volume biography of Grant. As you, you, I'm sure you know, there's been this resurgence of interest in Grant over the last decade or so. A lot of and bio- a very good biography, Ron, Ron Chernow, of course, yes, has, right. uh, has written. But uh, right. um, how how uh, how fascinating! How how does um, I haven't read that book of yours. What um, how does he emerge? One of the one of the presumably from the title, one of the greatest Americans. Right, he does. He emerges as a great American, flaws and all, but. Uh, uh it, it's a very balanced readable biography uh, it, it moves along very quickly but it covers a lot of ground and uh I'm always in there are three things about Grant that in reading biography stand out obviously is how he he kept on putting one foot in front of the other during very difficult times early in his career where it looked he was washed up and then and then uh, everyone is familiar with his leadership during uh, the Civil War uh, but then, uh, you know, his courage at the end of his life when he uh, went, he went bankrupt and uh, got cancer all within a couple of weeks, uh, diagnosed with cancer. And then he wrote uh, this, this great uh, work, his, his personal memoirs. And also, his- in order to in order to give some money to his widow, wasn't it? It was a financial um, thing. Uh, right. It's always a good reason to write is for money, um, as yeah. Samuel Johnson so rightly pointed <laughs> out. Um, <laughs> no man but a blockhead wrote except for money. He uh, he famously yeah. said. Um, tell me, yeah, actually, another- have you got to the end of the Grant book? Uh, have you have you finished well, yeah. it? And, okay. One of the, yeah. Well, can you tell me this? That, Sorry, can you explain to me something then? How was it that this very fine man, this very fine soldier, uh, this extraordinary figure, and as we discover later, a good writer, why was he such a, um, a, he was a president who allowed the people near him, the people closest to him, to essentially wreck his presidency? What was all that about? Well, that's almost what I was going to say. <laughs> ah, good, good. Is, Sorry, apologies for butting in. Then. No, no. I think when you when you actually look at the facts, there were you know there were people near him who who were up to no good, but it was actually pretty modest. I think what the story of Grant tells us again is who who writes the history. the The Democratic Party obviously depended on the South after the Civil War. The Republican Party stood for free, you know, uh, treating the former slaves fairly, protecting the rights of the freemen. It was Grant who went after the Ku Klux Klan. It was Grant who used the federal forces down in the South uh, to protect uh, the newly liberated slaves. And he's been re- and he was reviled in the South. But also, the Democratic Party after the Civil War, the Republicans had a monopoly on. The presidency for a while, and they would do anything to turn that around. And I think they went after uh, they went after Grant and his legacy. And and part of the negativity surrounding Grant in the past as a historical figure was really the propaganda that emerged from that time. And so you don't think these corruption scandals that affected his his family and friends were that important compared to? Uh, uh, I mean, even even at the time. 
Right. I don't think there was evidence of his personal corruption and the fact that there are aides that have profited. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not sure that that means that, uh, you know, the, how badly that reflects on a particular president. I mean, the executive branch is a big place and things happen. There are people who don't. <laughs> what if, uh, tell me your favorite counterfactual in uh, in history. What's the what's the what if that uh, that you like to scratch your head about sometimes? Well, Midway to me has always been one of the most fascinating situations because within a matter of a couple of minutes, uh, history sort of flipped. Yeah, uh, we, because they, because it was it could have been very that Japanese fleet could have been very easily missed. I mean, it was it was almost um, uh, a miracle that it was actually spotted, wasn't it? Right, and also uh, the fact that you know these this one group of dive bombers. You know, we lost all the torpedo planes that went in, and this one group of dive bomber. It, 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 it was just an, it, to me, it was one of the most dramatic things in history. Where uh, you know the Japanese made the decision to they thought they had uh, uh, gotten the Americans. They didn't know the carrier our carriers were close, and they were changing the bombs on their planes uh, so they could do a land strike against Midway. And they had taken off their anti ship. Uh, stuff. And then when they realized our carriers were there, they went back to try to load. And therefore, all these bombs were all over the carriers when our dive bombers went in. But we only had two carriers. And uh, if we had lost our carriers and if we had lost Midway, I think it would have been a pretty bad situation. In the Do you think it would have ex extended the war? Could it have extended the, the war in the Pacific by, I don't know, a, a year or more? I think oh, I think it would have been more than a year, but I also wonder whether the American people, you know, after defeating Hitler, and and if we weren't as far along in in the Pacific, whether we would have been more open to some kind of negotiation, negotiated settlement. Fascinating, Bill Barr. Thank you very much indeed for uh, appearing on Secrets of Statecraft. Thanks. Good to talk to you. Join me on my next Secrets of Leadership podcast, where my guest will be Julian Fellows creator of Downton Abbey, and the only Oscar winner in the House of Lords. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work, or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.